You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. Uh, arms open, hands open, trusting that you actually do welcome us to bring all of our burdens, our joys and our sorrows, to lay them at your feet, trusting that not only do you hold them and carry them, you carry us. So we come to you with hearts that are humble and hearts that are needy and hearts that are ready And we ask you to speak to us by your Spirit. That you'd comfort us where we are weary. That you'd strengthen us where we are weak. That you'd encourage us and equip us so that we might walk in faith in everything you place before us. Pray we'd continue to worship now through this time in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Uh, Good morning. Glad that you guys are here with us today. Uh, it feels like actual, like, nice weather today. So I feel like maybe we've arrived into spring and summer. Who knows? We'll see. Um, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, Luke 21. If you want to grab your Bibles, we'll, we'll be in Luke 21 today. If you need a Bible, some folks from our strike team are coming around and can uh, get one into your hands. You can follow along. If you do not have a Bible, please take one of these um, for yourself. Um, Today we're going to look at uh, Luke chapter 21, and this week and next week kind of go in a pair. It's kind of part one and part two. We're going to tackle the rest of this chapter over the next two weeks, Um, and and then starting in June. um, So this will end our study in Luke here this spring. We're going to then stop here at the end of 21. Uh, We'll start in June in the Psalms again. I think Psalm 38 will be our first uh, psalm. And then we'll pick Luke back up in uh, Luke 22 in January and uh, finish out Luke and a couple chapters of the book of Acts uh, next year, Lord willing. If he doesn't return before then, then we'll do Luke starting again in January. So the next two weeks, we're going to look at uh, Luke uh, 21 here, kind of part one, the first half of the passage today, and then the second half next week. And the hope is that it gives us some encouragement and some help as we live here as he's placed us here in this time and place. And so our approach today, because if you've read ahead at all, you're like, oh, this gets interesting. Luke 21 gets a little spicy. So um, one of the challenges is that the, the language, the type of Jesus' teaching here is, is different. And so today, this morning, our, our flow is going to go a little different. Uh, first, we're going to read our text like we tend to. Uh, second, I'm going to give us a little bit of extended context Um, to kind of build out some of the distinct qualities of this passage that I think will help us not just today, but tomorrow or next week as well when we finish out the chapter, as well as when we read other similar passages of Scripture in the Bible. So hopefully that will help. And then third, this morning, we'll actually unpack these verses to try to draw out some application for you and for me. I don't think it'll take any longer than it normally does, but I just want to give you a map of like, where is he going? He hasn't said uh, the big idea, we haven't had any points yet. 
That's, what, that's what's happening this morning. So, hope that makes sense. Let's start in God's Word, reading from the text itself. Um, we're going to read Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through verse 28 today. Luke uh, 21, 5 through 28. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, this is Jesus said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, Here uh, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be uh, terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my sake, my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you'll gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let those who are out in the country, let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They'll fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what's coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. This is God's holy word revealed to us. Amen? Amen. Now, there's a lot going on here. <laughs> and there's going to be a lot of overlap. This whole section is, is one big piece of text from uh, verse 5 when the question, Jesus gets asked a question all the way to the end of verse 38. It's one big idea and so we're going to just take part of it, but just you have to know there's a lot of, of overlap. 
And so today, I, I want to highlight some of the context that will help us understand the whole section, but I want to focus in on just a few things that I think we can take away from this passage, things Jesus is saying kind of pastorally, ways he wants to encourage the disciples that I think are good for us. Now, to this point in Jesus' ministry, he's made many claims and prophetic statements about like things that are going to happen. He's mostly spoken kind of prophetically about his own death. The Son of Man will be lifted up. The Son of Man will be uh, taken in by those who wish to harm him, right? He's talked about his death and his resurrection uh, before, kind of prophetically. But here, he kind of opens up a whole new can of worms. He's not just talking about his death and resurrection. Jesus is kind of like giving a sneak peek into the end of days, like the end of all things when he comes back again in glory. So a passage like this, and the reason for the context is a passage like this is both eschatological and apocalyptic. Those are big, giant $10 words. Let me explain them. Eschatology is the part of theology that deals with What's going to happen at the end of time? The last. So it's the theology of last things. Eschatology, just generally. That's the, the, the theological study of last things. Apocalyptic is speaking of an apocalypse. Uh, often understood to be like a standalone momentous, earth-shaking, destructive thing that accompanies or brings about the end, right? And, and so there's apocalyptic writing all throughout the Scriptures. Uh, the book of Revelation written by John, penned by John while he was exiled uh, on the island of Patmos for naming the name of Jesus, he gets exiled. And while there, the Holy Spirit gives him a vision of what's to come. And he recorded it in what we have as the book of Revelation, probably the most well-known piece of apocalyptic text we have in the Scriptures. But we see Old Testament prophecy that is apocalyptic as well. The book of the prophet Daniel is considered an apocalyptic, prophetic book. Not only that, uh, the prophet Ezekiel, the prophet Jeremiah, both have apocalyptic, like earth-ending, kind of time-ending things that they're speaking about and referring to as they write as well. And so the challenge for us is that apocalyptic type literature is hard. And I think it's hard for us for two reasons. One of the reasons is that it's weird. It is. It's strange. Apocalyptic writing is full of symbolism and illustration and, and pictures, in part because it's hard for us to get our finite brains around like infinite spiritual things. And so when we're thinking of future and uh, God's intervention into creation and all these sorts of things, getting our tiny brains, okay, my, getting my tiny brain, I don't, maybe your brain is bigger than mine, but getting our, our minds, our finite minds around these sort of big glorious things is, is difficult for us. And so, apocalyptic literature is often full of imagery and illustration and allegory and pictures so that it might help us as limited beings at least partially comprehend what it is we're looking at. A friend of mine sent me this meme at Christmas and I've saved it because I think it's helpful. Have you seen this one? Honey, don't forget to put the biblically accurate angel on top of the Christmas tree. 
right? Now, I don't know if they're pink, but like the descriptions of angelic hosts in the Bible, sometimes they're like, you know, seem to be a man clothed in blazing white. But then you go into like Revelation, for example, really apocalyptic, and it's like there's wings and eyes everywhere and multiple heads on things, and you're like, what is happening? This is terrifying, right? So, so apocalyptic writing for us is tough sometimes just because it's hard for us to comprehend. But, but more than that, I think it's tough for us in the same way that a lot of prophecy, even Old Testament prophecy, is hard for us. We see this with Old Testament prophecy all the time. The reason it's tough for us is because there's like multiple facets to us, and, and we just like one thing at a time. We prefer linear. Let me give you an example. We're going to talk about and reference Jeremiah a, a few times today. But the prophet Jeremiah is at a point in time where he's speaking to the people of Israel on behalf of God and letting them know, hey, by the way, punishment is coming. You've been unfaithful to the Lord, and so uh, exile to Babylon is going to happen to you. Now, at the end of that, God will rescue you and renew you and bring you back. He's going to preserve for himself a remnant, some of his people, and he's going to renew that covenant relationship with you and cause you to worship him properly again. That will happen, but first, exile. It's prophet Jeremiah, in a nutshell. And if you track the history of God's people, after a time of exile in Babylon, God does restore them. He brings them back. In fact, we see it in Ezra and Nehemiah. The, the people are brought back and they rebuild the wall. They, they, they practice faithful worship again, which they hadn't for a generation. As the, the whole nation repents and says, we've been missing out on what God has called us to, and there's renewal. And, and so you can imagine that Nehemiah, doing brickwork on the wall, right? Trowel in one hand, sword in the other. He's, he's, as they're like rebuilding the city, he's thinking probably... This, it's happening. It, the prophet Jeremiah who promised this would happen, and look, it's, we're, we're, we're being renewed. We're being restored. And he's absolutely right. That is absolutely true, that God did have a plan and a future for his people that was not to harm them, that was to bring them back and restore them. And, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, Jeremiah wasn't only speaking of the renewal of the people of Israel you know, circa mid-400s B.C. He was talking about that, but Hebrews 8 says, Jeremiah the prophet, when he's speaking of renewal, when he's speaking of renewed covenant, he's actually talking about Jesus, Hebrews tells us. So, so from one perspective on the timeline of history, if you're looking down the, the road of time, the prophets of God saw a glorious light in the future of promise. I, I made an illustration that maybe is helpful. Just picture that that's just the clip art on my computer. Um, you're standing there looking forward down time, and what do you see in the future but God's glorious promise? You can't see anything else because you can only see in a straight line through time, and God has promised a glorious future. And so the prophets of old are going, that's God's promise. It's coming. But what they couldn't often see was a brighter light beyond the light that they could see, which is often how prophecy works. And so I have another image. I'm going to put the next slide up. There you go. Same guy, just smaller, looking down through time, but from God's perspective, outside of the confines of just standing on the road to time, 
There's a glorious soon-to-be fulfillment and a better, often, fulfillment to come. It's a little bit of, of both ends. So, so Jeremiah is pointing to God's renewal from exile and his restoration of a people. And he's also pointing to a greater restoration, a greater renewal, a better covenant in Jesus. And so I want us to keep this in mind, these challenges in mind, as we read a text like this. Because then we hopefully don't get too stuck on some of the minutiae and the details and what's happening here and, and instead are able to hear the pastoral heart of Jesus to say, let me encourage you in what you need as you traverse the craziness of the world in which you live. So, let's get into our text, if that makes sense. That's the context that hopefully will help us both today and next week a little bit. This text, Luke 21 is referred to as the Olivet Discourse. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are, are leaving the temple. They're heading east out of the city. And so this dialogue is happening in and around the Mount of Olives, just east of Jerusalem. Uh, Mark 13 and Matthew 24 and 25 record uh, actually longer versions, longer sections of this dialogue between Jesus and his disciples. I'd encourage you this week as you, in your reading is just Open up Mark 13, open up Matthew 24 and 25, and read them in tandem with this passage. Um, our focus will be mostly on Luke's uh, account in Luke 21. But all three of these passages start with the exact same prompt from one of the disciples. They're leaving the temple, and, and one of the disciples looking around and says, Man, this is a really beautiful building. The stonework... It's fascinating. It would have been Herod's temple at the time. Um, the temple had already been rebuilt once. And so I'm sure it had some of the glory of Solomon's temple. Uh, Herod expanded the court and wanted to make himself look important. But nonetheless, it was still to the specs, at least the primary part of the temple, of how God had uh, told Solomon to build it. And so he's just remarking how beautiful and, and magnificent the stone on the temple is. And Jesus' response, yeah, this whole thing's coming down. It's just an interesting dialogue, right? I mean, can you imagine for a second, put yourself in the place of that disciple who's just making an observation like, man, this is really beautiful. Jesus, don't you, man, didn't they do a good job on this? Do you have to go all apocalyptic on it, Jesus, and be like, Debbie Downer? Like, what's happening here? And so when Jesus kind of levels this challenge to them, like, oh, hey, this is all coming down. Do you see the response of the disciples next? Well, when? <laughs> When's this going to happen, Lord? How are we going to know what's going to come next? And in both Matthew and Mark's account, um, a couple of the disciples kind of pulled Jesus aside privately. Like, maybe they don't want to freak out the rest of them. Either way, you get this sense of worry that kind of rises to the surface from the disciples. Right? What started as a simple observation of a beautiful building is now like terror. Wait, you're telling me this is all going to go? What? what? When is this going to happen? And that's what I want to press on in this text. That's what I think is actually the kind of the pastoral heart in this text. Now next week it'll overlap a little bit. We're going to start in verse 25 and kind of read the section we read today and continue to the end. So we're going to get into the, the, the verse 32, for example, where Jesus says, I 
Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away till all this has taken place. We'll get into some of that, focus on some of that timing and what Jesus is talking about. But, but today, I just want to zero in on what's going on in the heart of the disciples. Their question about timing and when this is all going to take place is exposing in them worry. They're worried, and I think that's part of what Jesus is responding to. There's worry about what's to come, and we can relate to that. Worry about what's to come. But what's fascinating to me, in Jesus' response and his challenge to his disciples, is actually hopeful. There's hope here, and here's the hope. Here's the big idea, that we need not worry because Jesus, our Redeemer, is trustworthy and true. We might worry about what's going to come, what's going to happen, but we need not worry because Jesus, our Redeemer, is trustworthy and true. So, so Jesus kind of levels this, this bomb of a statement that all this that you see is coming down. Disciples ask, when? When will this happen? What are going to be the signs? How will we know? That's their question. When is it going to happen? How are we going to know? And Jesus answers, I think, with two very interesting kind of statements. First, he says, don't be deceived. And second, he says, don't be afraid. And then to answer, why? Why, uh, why avoid being led astray? Why should we not be terrified? Three, our third kind of big idea, our third point today is that because Jesus promised. He promised some things. Let's look at the first one. Don't be deceived. Verse 7. So they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be and what will be the, the sign when these things are about to take place? In verse 8 he said, See that you are not led astray. Which seems kind of like an odd answer, right? If your kid asked you, Hey, like, when are we going to have lunch? You'd be like, Don't be afraid. I was hoping for 12.30, but fine, right? It seems like an odd answer. When is this all going to happen? Jesus says, don't be deceived. For many will come in my name, he continues, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Jesus says, do not go after them. I think this is important that Jesus opens, and we'll talk about it later, kind of closes this discourse with a warning about false messiahs, false saviors, false prophets, those whose intent is to deceive. They're not sent by God. They're here to stir up fear and confusion about what's coming. The reality is false prophets are not a, a new thing. They're not only a, a future thing. Because we've already talked about Jeremiah, we'll talk about him some more. Jeremiah was warning God's people of false prophets in, the, in his day as well. In Jeremiah 14 and in Jeremiah 28, we have two instances of the Lord speaking through Jeremiah, and part of his warning to the people is to not listen to those who are lying about being sent by God. <clears throat> they're not speaking from God. They're speaking from the deceit of their own minds, he says. Don't be led astray, says Jesus. Don't get freaked out and follow them, which is helpful for us because false teachers and false saviors and false prophecy, if you will, even if it's not called that in our day and age, but it, it's, it, it's ripe, right? If someone calls you or texts you and says, hey, Jesus is coming back next week and invites you over to their bunker, can I just say, don't go? Let me just, don't go with them. Don't wear the matching sweatsuits. Don't put on the white sneakers. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. 
don't go. It's not going to go well, right? What's fascinating in Jesus' encouragement or his challenge or his statement to, to not be led astray, there's probably lots, but I think there are two really potent tools for marketing. One is comfort and the other is fear. So these false teachers are using some kind of false comfort or some kind of overwhelming fear, I think, to kind of drive us to deception. On the one hand, you have comfort, right? Do the thing, take the pill, buy this product, and you will be slimmer, prettier, stronger, happier. Your life will be easier. That's what was happening in the days of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was saying, hey, I have to warn you, exile is coming. Now, God will restore you after a season, but a generation will have to endure exile, slavery. It'll be time. He will renew you. The false prophets of Jeremiah's day were like, no, God loves you. God would never send you away. And even if he did, it would only be for a little bit. Right? They're preaching a, a false gospel, if you will, of comfort. Because the people didn't want to hear hard things, and so those who wanted to be loved by the people didn't tell them hard things, told them easy things. I I bought a t-shirt recently that, uh, as a reminder to myself, the back of the t-shirt reads, comfort is a slow death. And I need that reminder because my bent is going to be towards the couch, right? It's going to be towards comfort, the avoidance of difficulty, right? Comfort is one pathway, one uh, seller of things that are false. The other is fear. And I know this because I have a TV and there are political ads on that TV. We all know this, right? How many, I mean, some, some political advertisement is like, hey, here's my positions on these things. And you're like, oh, thank you, helpful person on the TV. But most of them aren't that. Most of them are this other guy is going to kill you and your wife and your kids and your grandchildren and the country, so vote for me. That's typically how they go, right? What are they stoking there? Fear. Fear. Don't vote for them. Vote for me instead. Now, there might be good arguments to debate on a particular candidate and their positions on things, but often it just gets boiled down to peddling fear. And so it's a question we need to ask ourselves in this whole vein of Jesus saying, in light of all that's going on in the world, don't be deceived. And because you and I sometimes have trouble evaluating ourselves, we have far too many blind spots than maybe we want to admit. Sometimes we actually need people in our lives and community and others who can like help us see these things. So let's ask this question. Do either of these tactics tend to have pull over us? Or maybe if I say it this way, which of these tactics has pull over us? Are these places where we might be prone to being led astray? Are we motivated in the pursuit of comfort? Are we motivated or driven by the fear of difficulty or hardship? Jesus straight up says, in answer to your question about when all this stuff is going to take place, he says, see that you're not led astray. Don't be deceived. Second, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Look at verse 9. Don't be terrified. When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. Now, that word tumult, great word, it means disorder, insurrection. My favorite kind of uh, synonym 
ruckus, which is funny. Every time I tried to type in ruckus into my notes, it kept trying to correct it to RC kids. So I don't know if that's prophetic at all. I mentioned it to Liz and she's like, well, it is a ruckus. So just hats off to all of our volunteers in River City Kids. Uh, If you see a River City Kids volunteer, just high five them or hug them or buy them a cup of coffee or something. It is a ruckus. Um, But Jesus says when you hear of wars and tumults, when everything goes nuts, don't be terrified, right? And then he goes on to describe kind of what this ruckus, this kind of tumult looks like. We read it earlier, verse 10, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Verse 11, earthquakes and famines and pestilence and terrors and great signs from heaven. So not only is it humans uh, violence against other humans, but also creation itself is going a little bit crazy. But before all this, verse 12, Jesus says, persecution will come. Why? Specifically, you'll be persecuted, Jesus says, for my namesake. And if you skip ahead down to verse 20, he says this, you're going to see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, and you're going to know, you're going to know that it's desolation. That's an important word. Hang on to that one. It's desolation has come near. Don't come back to the city to get your things when you see this happening. Just If you're out in the hills, just keep going, right? And then Jesus, to try to capture how terrible it will be, how difficult it will be, he uses the illustration of a pregnant mother or a nursing mother who's already carrying around the burden of caring for and nourishing another human being now has to bring into the world that's falling apart or to nourish and take care of a needy, tiny human in this context. Jesus is like, it's going to be that kind of bad. That's the picture. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, the question often as as we get into texts like this is like, I'm still with the disciples going, so, so when is this going to happen? Right? He hasn't actually answered that question specifically. Now, for us, at, at Christmas time, we celebrate the first coming of Jesus, the first advent, the first appearing. And Christ's return at the end of time, at the end of all things, is the second advent, his second appearing. And so between Jesus first appearing and his second appearing, this period of time between advents, theologians call the inter-advental period. Real unique, but very helpful. And so Jesus is describing, I think, in broad strokes, this is what tumult and trial and tribulation looks like here, living between these two points in time, my first coming and my second coming. And in light of all of this, he's saying, don't be deceived and don't be afraid. And we're going to get into a little bit more next week, uh, but broadly speaking, I think Jesus is laying out a simple picture, a chart, if you will, that looks kind of like this. Where in time, Jesus incarnate, that is God the Son, takes on human flesh, comes into humanity, advent number one, and from that point until the time when Jesus comes again in glory on a cloud, just like we read in Luke 21, advent two, we live in this age in general terms. The book of Hebrews, chapter one, verse two, uses the term 
these last days. In these last days, the writer of Hebrews says, he has spoken to us by his son. That's advent to advent. And so Jesus' focus on the temple and its destruction now fits within the bigger story Jesus is telling us about what's going to happen between now and the end. Remember how I said, hang on to that word, desolation? Here's why I think Jesus knows exactly what he's doing when he uses that word. In Daniel chapter 12, it closes with a picture of the end of all things. (laughs) Daniel describes a time coming where the burnt offering, which is temple worship sacrifice, the burnt offering will be taken away and the abomination that makes desolation is set up. Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. And I think it's entirely reasonable that Daniel was prophesying about the destruction of the temple, that Jerusalem would be surrounded, that the temple would be destroyed, that the ability to offer sacrifice, as God described, through Moses in the temple, would not be able to take place and the people of Israel will be left desolated. So I think part of what's going on here is Jesus is saying this thing that's been prophesied by Daniel will happen. And Jesus anchors, like that picture of the prophetic fulfillment, Jesus anchors that to a near point in time. In this case, in history, the temple was destroyed by Rome in 70 AD. Has not been built since. So he's, he's pointing to a near point in time that's going to fall in the midst of a larger time between his first and his second coming. There's a near desolation, if I can say it this way, and a coming desolation when Christ comes again. Like I said, we're going to get into this a little bit more next week um, when we look at the verses 25 through 38 in more depth. Um, but, but make no mistake, Jesus is giving a snapshot of what's going to happen. In, in broad terms, he's like, yes, it's going to be as crazy as you think it is. And the first things he says are, don't be led astray and don't be afraid. Which leads us back to our problem. Like Jesus' disciples, we can worry about what's going to happen. But I said, we need not worry because Jesus, our Redeemer, is both trustworthy and true. Which leads to our third kind of final point this morning. Jesus promised. He promised a few things that we see here in this text. I've picked out three. First, Jesus promised it's going to get wild. (laughs) He said it's going to be hard. We've read all that already. We won't have to belabor the point, but there's going to be trials and tribulations and war and famine and persecution, and all of that is reality, so you can count it as a promise that tumult is a real thing. That's a promise. Not our favorite promise, maybe, but he says it. But he doesn't just say that. Look at verse 14 and 15 of Luke 21. After talking about wars and famines and nation against nation, Jesus says, Settle it in your minds not to meditate beforehand how you'll answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. He doesn't just promise it's going to be wild. He promises he will give you a mouth. When persecution comes, because it will, don't worry about what you're going to say, for I will give you a mouth. I will give you wisdom. Jesus 
promises wisdom. And what's more, rather than worry about what's to come, the Spirit is giving us, verse 13, an opportunity. Now, this isn't meant to be like a TED Talk where we just turn all of our difficulties into opportunities. This is a legitimate opportunity. When trials come, the Spirit of God is giving an opportunity, verse 13, what? To bear witness, to make confession that Jesus is trustworthy and true. Because if Jesus' promises are true, then every challenge, every act of persecution, every hardship is an opportunity to give testimony, to bear witness to the truth of the gospel in Jesus. It's a promise. Third, what else does Jesus promise? He says he's coming back. He's coming back. Verse 28, when these things begin to take place, he says, your redemption is drawing near. Just a few words before, he says, when you, they see the Son of Man coming on a cloud. And how do I know that verse 28 is talking about Jesus coming back? If you go all the way back to Luke chapter 2, you meet a woman named Anna. Married for just a few years. Husband dies, she's a widow. For 70 plus years, she's a widow. Essentially lives at the temple, worshiping and fasting and praying. And when Mary brings the infant Jesus to the temple for his dedication, she rejoices. And then she praised God and began to speak about Jesus, Luke tells us, to all who, like her, had been waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She rejoices because her redemption is here. And so in Luke 21, when Jesus says, Lift your heads for your redemption is at hand. He is essentially saying, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. When these things begin to take place, your redemption is drawing near. What things is he talking about? Well, when stuff is getting hard. And when does that start? Right away. Luke is credited with writing the book of Acts 2. And and in Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends into the sky. They just watch it happen, and then the angel says, hey, why are you looking into the sky? He, he told you he's coming back. Why are you waiting around here for? You should go do what he said. They go back to the city. They go to the upper room. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends on the now apostles in this fresh way. The gospel begins to, like, go out. Acts chapter 3, Peter's proclaiming the truth about Jesus who Jesus was. He calls people to repentance and to follow Jesus as Lord. Acts chapter 4, Satan doesn't like this very much. The Sadducees lay hands on Peter, like Jesus said they would, and take him to prison. Remember what we read earlier in Luke 21, verse 12? Look at verse 12. But before all this, before all what? Before all the nations rising against nation, before all the earthquakes, They will lay their hands on you and persecute you and deliver you up to synagogues and prisons and you will stand before kings and governors for my namesake. Peter and the disciples get the first taste of the persecution in the name of Jesus that Jesus was talking about. Soon to come, Jerusalem will feel the the first effects of this desolation and the trials to come. And so it begins and so it is as we work and live through this age. Jesus is promising 
There will be trials, but don't be afraid. I'm going to give you everything you need to say, and I'm coming back. Your redemption is near. So rather than worry, the Spirit is giving us an opportunity to testify to the gospel. Rather than worry, the Spirit is giving us an opportunity to trust that all that Jesus says about himself is true and that all of what he promises will come to pass just as he has said. Jesus says in verse 26, people will be fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Straighten up, he says. Raise your heads. Look up in anticipation rather than down in distress. Why? Because Jesus is coming back and Jesus wins. That's why. He's not a harbinger of doom and gloom, Jesus, in this passage. He's a harbinger of hope because of his promises. Now, we will get into it a little more next week and look a little more deeply into some of the nuances of eschatology that come to the surface here in Luke 21. We can fight about that next week. Like, for example, how we can understand how does the destruction of the temple in 70 AD fit within the context of all the other stuff that's happening? What signs are yet to come? You know, when Jesus, because he hasn't come back yet, so there isn't a resurrection yet, so what does that look like? We'll talk about some of that stuff, for sure. But as Jesus says in in verse 26, when all this is happening around you, people will be fainting with fear and and foreboding. Foreboding is just nervous, anxious expectation. Why? It's worry is what it is. Why will they be doing this? Well, because of all that's coming to pass. It's crazy. The resting position for the average human looking at this crazy future in time is Worry and fear and foreboding, but not for us. No matter what comes, Jesus is trustworthy and true, just like he said he was. So don't be deceived and don't be afraid. Lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. That's the message of Jesus in this passage. Friends, there's hope for us even in the midst of unknowns and all the unsureness about what's to come. Not because, our hope is not because we are clever enough to not be deceived. It won't happen to me. I'm a smart one. That's not our hope. Our hope is because God has given us his word to instruct us, to build us up in the truth. And because all who belong to Jesus are filled with the Holy Ghost. All of them. And Jesus has promised to grant all of us wisdom needed to discern what is true and what is false, to walk by faith in his trustworthiness because he is trustworthy. Our hope in the midst of trial and tribulation is not because we'll be free from all difficulty as we await Jesus' soon return. In fact, Hebrews reminds us that some by faith put armies to flight and some by faith We're sawn in two. Our hope is not that there won't be trouble. Our hope is that even though there will be trouble, 
we can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. So there is hope in this coming apocalyptic reality, if I can say it that way. Not because we have it all figured out, every minute detail of what's going to happen and in what order, but because Jesus is trustworthy, because He is true. And the one who is trustworthy and true has called us to Himself, and He's commissioned us. He's tasked us as ambassadors, hope peddlers here to testify to the trustworthiness of Jesus and the truth and hope of the gospel. And Jesus has promised to never leave us and never forsake us. So when he says, I am with you always to the very end of the age, we can believe him. Jesus, our coming redeemer, is trustworthy and true. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I confess, even just the regular cares of this world can be enough to overwhelm, let alone trying to consider the the bigger spiritual reality of what's happening, what's going on right now, even in in the heavenly places and and all that's to come. I I pray you'd rescue my heart, you'd rescue us from the pursuit of comfort and from the anxiety and worry of fear by fixing our eyes firmly on you, Lord Jesus. That we'd read of your promises and that would anchor our fickle hearts to, to deep and, and, and things that hold. You are indeed our anchor. And we can trust in you. Even as we come to the table this morning, that we'd remember the beauty and the depth of your love poured out from your own body to rescue us. All that you've done to, to rescue us. And we can be sure that You will, together with him, graciously provide all that we need. Pray you'd cause our hearts to worship you as we come to the communion table this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.